around one third of our planet's land is currently used for food, fiber, timber, or energy to support the 7.6 billion people currently living on Earth. And this is growing as the world's population expands. But there is a high price to pay because hand in hand with this growth is an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, a loss of natural ecosystems, and the decline of global biodiversity. Despite this, we are failing to meet global demand for food. In 2019, 690 million people went hungry. Instead of eradicating global hunger by 2030. Which is the second internationally agreed sustainable development goal. Global hunger is increasing, and the UN predicts that 840 million people will be starving by the end of this decade. This is without the additional pressure from COVID-19, which could add another 100 million people to this total. Put simply, we are failing to meet demand for food, and according to the world-leading Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, our existing methods are degrading the soil in which we grow and rear our food. What we need are new approaches to deliver food security. Approaches that are local to the areas of food demand. Systems that don't create more carbon emissions or destroy biodiversity. We need more tunnels. Hello and welcome to the Tunnelling Podcast. I am John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we're exploring new ways to use tunnels, including the potential for food production underground. So basically, the focus of the project is the development challenge of food security. As we are running out of arable land, so we think uh, we need to think of new ways how to produce food for the future. This is Klaus Faktor. I'm project manager with Amberg Engineering, uh, working on the design of underground structures. Uh, beside that, I'm the managing director of, of SCOUT, so the Swiss Centre of Applied Underground Technologies. And SCOUT is always looking for new ways to see underground space. So uh, we think that the, the third dimension, you know, going downwards, is really useful uh, with respect to new cities, to the urban development. It can play an integral part of it. So we try to facilitate uh, and stimulate the industry, industry partners who work together, who join forces and develop new concepts. New concepts like the underground green farming project. Today we see a clear trend to vertical farming in urban areas. It's quite convincing and offers a lot of benefits. And that got the team at Scout thinking. How could we connect with the underground? Because from our point of view, there are major advantages the underground space could offer. Like for instance, it's, it's fully independent and safe against the impacts of climate change. Hail storms, for instance, they do not happen underground. It's a controlled and closed environment with uh, constant climate conditions, which is also very favorable. And it's possible to grow in urban areas. And basically that's exactly where the demand is. But growing food requires light, air, nutrients and water none of which occur naturally underground. Instead, the project uses fish. Rainbow trout, to be specific. We focus on the application of aquaponics. Which is a combination of aquaculture and hydroponics. And the system works in a symbiotic environment. Aquaculture is the breeding, rearing and harvesting of fish or other water-based organisms. 
Hydroponics is a science of growing plants without using soil by feeding them on nutrients dissolved in water. So basically what, what you do is uh, you uh, feed the fish and then uh, the, the water coming from the fish tanks, which is enriched with the nutrients via the, the fish excrement, which is that this serves as a food source for the plants and is then recirculated in the system or to the, to the water, to the fish water. Among the partners working on the test project is an aquaponics specialist based in France who recommended rainbow trout. But this underground farm sits in the Hagerbach test gallery in Switzerland, so the team had to find a local supplier. Scout was responsible for looking for a local farmer here in Switzerland, and luckily we found a few of them. So what we do, basically, we buy small fish with a weight of approximately 200, 250 grams. Then cultivate them for, for six to eight weeks, depending on the amount of, fee, of food we give to them. And then at a, at a weight of 650, 700 grams, we take them out and uh, slaughter them. And the nice fact is that in the test gallery where we have our prototype running, there is also a public restaurant. So we can really directly bring the fish from the, from the, from the tank on the plate within yeah, a few hours. But the fish are just the beginning because it is these hardy members of the salmon family that create the right nutrition for the leafy vegetables being cultivated in the test gallery's hydroponic system. The system is, is, comp is generally composed of three parts. Uh, it's the fish unit, it's a filter unit, and it's the vegetable unit. Mechanical and biological filters are used to convert the ammonia in the fish waste into nitrates that flow into a nitrate well that feeds the plants. Working out which plants grow is all part of the testing process. So we test a, a big variety or different sorts of plants, basically leafy plants like lettuce, like spinach, uh, different kind of salad, but also herbs and also plants that like to grow in, you know, moisture conditions, like wasabi. Working out what can be successfully and economically cultivated down in the tunnel, which has an average temperature of 16 degrees centigrade, is all part of the process. Although in future, Klaus says there are plans to use waste heat from other underground activities to support the plant growth. One of the most important parameters for any agricultural endeavour is to make sure that there is enough light. So you mentioned the lighting. Of course, that's an essential part because uh, underground we do not have the natural sunlight. But here I was really impressed by the know-how that is available on this uh, special field. Because for instance, it is known that only the bluish part of the sunlight is used for the root growth. Whereas for, for flowers or for blooms, more the red part of the light wavelengths is required. So with this know-how, it allows for an optimization also of the growing process. But it isn't just the wavelength of the light that impacts plant growth. The duration of light is another factor to be considered, and the team experimented with different light profiles. What we do, of course, is test different durations. So the lighting, because you know, normal day you have the, the daylight and then you have the night, where the plants can also rest. And underground you could think of, okay, just giving light 24 hours to the plants, but we need to test, okay, how does the plant react? Because basically they also need to rest. So we are now testing is a 16-8 or a 10-14, what is the best split? 
For now, the system is powered by the mains electricity supply from the test gallery. But in the future, there are plans to look at other forms of energy, which could see some collaboration between the underground green farming project and other studies underway at Scout. So Scout is, is running a, a second concept study, uh, which is called the Edge Computing Underground. So that's basically uh, the modular concept of an underground data center. And as you might know, data center produce a lot of heat. So today, or what happens today is that this uh, heat is just uh, given away. And we really want to reuse it and, and uh, use it for other purposes, other applications. And there we could also think of uh, feeding it to the underground farming prototype. Combining underground data centers with underground farms would then expand the variety of plants which could be grown. At the desk gallery today, we have an annual temperature which is constant at 16 degrees. That, that's well suited for, for leaves, but it's not really suited for, for strawberries, for instance. So if we want to go for this and cultivate this kind of, of uh, vegetables, we really need to uh, higher the temperature. And in this regard, we could use the thermal energy directly. But we're also thinking of other concepts where we can transform uh, this thermal heat into electrical power. Making the process more efficient is essential because if tunnels are to become underground farms, then they have to be economic. Klaus says that it's too soon to examine the long-term financial results, but the efficiency is on his mind and the aim of the prototype is to test out all the different variables and use the results to create a more detailed concept. But at the same time, we do also work on a concept study that uh, develop a modular concept, uh, including an economic assessment, but also marketing strategy and a business model generation. Because in the end, if you want to really go to the market, that's, that's, that's very important, that's essential. The idea for the project started back in the summer of 2018, and by early 2019, the test project was launched. The first phase demonstrated that the system worked, and the next phase is about testing out the impact of different environmental conditions on plant growth. The team in Switzerland are not the first to try and explore the use of underground space for growing food. Growing underground in London, for example, has used an abandoned WW2 air raid shelter for food production. So basically, when we started this project, of course, we were looking around what is done elsewhere in, around the world. And there are a lot of, or are, let's say, a few examples where underground farming is already uh, also tested, like, for instance, in London, as you mentioned, in, a, in an old shelter, a pump shelter. But what we want to do is we, we really focus on food production in an industrial manner. And uh, this includes the usage of digitalization, but also to automate certain processes. And I think in this regard, we, we are a bit different than uh, these more, more or less smaller productions for a specific purpose. On the digitization side, sensors report on the entire aquaponic process, from the water temperature to the nitrate levels, allowing team members across the world to monitor the project, something that has become even more important as COVID-19 reduces travelling for anyone, including the project partners. Eventually, the team hoped to create a circular process where the inputs, such as fish food and energy, are self-generated. But for now, it is all about optimising the plant growth. The prototype is just the first step where we really want to bring this, this proof of concept, but then we focus on a more industrial production. Uh, and then we really focus on 
marketing this product and also uh, building underground farms around the world. For Klaus, who is a geotechnical engineer, moving into agriculture was not something he expected to happen when he first began working for Amberg Engineering in Switzerland as an intern in 2012. But this is just one of the projects he is involved with as Scout seeks out new uses for underground space. I'm fascinated by the idea of exploring and using the underground space as an integral part of urban development. And, you know, come up with new concepts and technologies for this. And that means new ways of using tunnels. So, uh, since we see a clear trend of urbanization, we think of new, we have to think of new ways. And by that, you can say that the underground space, it offers enormous capacities, right? So, which we need to, to get used and they're almost untapped yet. So everyone is familiar with metro systems, for instance, so passenger transport, but why not thinking of transporting goods underground or putting warehouses underground, similar as we do it with, with underground car parks. So that's also the vision of Scout. So far, new projects are in early stages. And what we did, uh, as I said, we launched a second concept study, which is the Edge Computing Underground project, uh, where we really try to work on, on edge computing, meaning smaller decentralized data centers rather than transmitting all the data to a cloud. And we want to showcase how this system could work. But besides these concept studies, uh, we also focus, of course, on technology development. And here, digitalization, building information modeling play an, an essential part. Also in you know, the digital transformation of the construction industry. So we have launched a series of projects under the banner of Construction 4.0. Klaus may be looking at new ways to use underground space, but that is not to say he isn't interested in traditional tunnelling too. In 2017, he spent over a year examining the potential for a new tunnel connection between Finland and Estonia, a link which would run for 100 kilometres underneath the Gulf of Finland, becoming the longest rail tunnel in the world. So we conducted a feasibility study on an undersea rail connection from Helsinki in Finland to Tallinn in Estonia. The challenging thing of this connection is that it would have a total length of approximately 100 kilometers. So it would be definitely the, the longest tunnel in the world. And of course, it's also challenging with respect to intermediate accesses. How do you solve this issue under the sea? Finland is no stranger to tunnelling, and in fact has one of the longest water tunnels in the world. The Piana water tunnel moves fresh water south from inland lakes to the capital Helsinki. But this 4 metre diameter, 120 kilometre long tunnel was a drill and blast project cutting through rock. This subsea link is a completely different proposal. Let's say the tunnel system is composed of three tubes. So two running tubes and a service tunnel in between. And of course, for this length, you, you, you go for TBM. Each traffic tunnel would be 10 metres in diameter, with an 8 metre diameter central service tunnel. It would run through the bedrock of the Gulf of Finland, with a minimum rock cover of 40 metres. For construction, two access points at either end of the 100 kilometre length would not be enough. And then what we did, we proposed a solution for using uh, artificial islands. So to really use also part of the spoil coming from the tunnel to, to, to build these artificial islands on both sides, one 
uh, next to Finland and one next to Estonia. Meaning that six TBMs could operate simultaneously. On a project that could cost as much as 20 billion US dollars. A project that would shorten travel time between the two countries from a two-hour boat trip to a 30-minute train journey. A project that is currently being considered by politicians in both countries. A project that would build on lessons learned from sending rock TBMs through the Alps to build the 57-kilometre Gotthard base tunnel. A project that inspired Klaus as a young geotechnical engineer. Funny fact, I was doing an internship in Switzerland during my studies. It was, I remember, in 2012. Uh, and uh, I, I did it with Hamburg Engineering in Zurich. And I remember almost half of the, the people working here on Gotthard. So this was really the, the huge, it was really hard to find any or someone who was not involved in the Gotthard. So this was really a huge project. Uh, but then when I finished my studies and I came here in 2014, then it was the, the design, of course, was done. So it was more just uh, the construction. But I was personally not involved in this project. But of course, since it's, uh, yeah, as I said, uh, a one, once in a century project, you pay attention, especially when you're, here, when you're living in Switzerland. <laughs> Capturing the knowledge from this is important to Klaus. Well, definitely. It, it was for us, it was one of the, you know, once in a century project in, in Switzerland. So, and there is a lot of, uh, also R&D being done just for this specific project. So we have to, to use and capture this knowledge. And this was also one of the, uh, one of the reasons Scout basically was founded as some kind of competence center. Where we, you, you have all these partners available in the network. They know how exactly what has been done. They know how to do it. And they can use this know-how also for further projects. Further projects, from digital engineering to underground farming, and in some cases even combining the underground concepts to create something new and more efficient, such as using heat from underground data centres to provide warmth for plant growth. This scheme may be in its early stages, but Klaus says there is a whole lot of interest from all over the world, particularly in countries where climate and land shortages are an issue. When we came up with the idea of underground farming, there was the WTC in Dubai. The World Tunnel Congress. Where we basically presented the concept to the tunnel industry. And of course, for, for uh, locations like Dubai, they were super interested because they can't produce almost anything above ground due to the heat, right? So that's definitely a location where we could think of a, of a second prototype or also then an industrial production. In fact, Klaus says that this could make sense in any congested city, but only time will tell whether the economics will prove that tunnels could be the farms of the future. The Tunneling Podcast is hosted by me, John Young, and Rian Owen. The producer for this episode was Bernadette Ballantyne. Script supervision by John Young, sound design by Ross McPherson, series supervision by Martin Nowak of the British Tunneling Society, and our executive producer is Rory Harris. We are constantly on the lookout for great tunneling stories to tell. If you have a story to share, get in touch with us via our website, tunneling.reby.media.